Hello everyone, it's June 27th, 2023, and Starship is getting a hot staging upgrade. Starship will launch from its own booster, which will require some changes, of course, and Elon thinks it can be done in a few months. That's ambitious. But anyway, let's discuss what we can expect to see and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 415 of the Overload Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm a very tired Ben. And I'm a somewhat lethargic Dennis as well. Huh. <laughs> Coming at you this fine Sunday morning with all the high energy you come to expect from <laughs> yeah. the Overload Mechanics yeah. Podcast. Yeah, I guess, Ben, you had a pretty tiring week. Yeah, yeah, I was I was traveling for work. I, I, I got a weird package in the mail this week, though. Mm. Ford sent me a water bottle as a thank you for getting a uh recall repair done on my ford maverick and i think the marketing team uh had a bunch of water bottles left over and they needed uh ways to get rid of them and they went where can we get addresses of uh ford maverick owners because it's a ford maverick branded water bottle i think they went uh oh i see our recall list yeah okay we have registered addresses they've got the recall so we know that their address is correct let's start shipping out water bottles and like the the cardboard box it came in was like hand cut down to size so uh like i said i think i think this was desperation from the from the marketing team <laughs> is it a uh, plastic or metal it's actually it's a really nice yeti water bottle um so it's insulated it's um aluminum and uh the lid is actually really interesting it's a wide mouth lid but um it's got like two lids that screw together the bottom one adapts from the wide mouth down to a narrow mouth and then the top lid screws into the narrow mouth and is like a handle it's, it's a really nice water bottle i just don't think it fits in the water bottle slot in the car the car door it's got like this slot that they advertise like before the car came out they were really excited about they have this slot just for big water bottles and no water bottles fit in it it's just a little too small for like most of the you know 32 ounce water bottles and so they yeah right they were sending out these branded water bottles um, when they first released the truck and everybody was like, you know, oh, my dealer gave me one of these water bottles and it doesn't fit. Ah, that's, I think that's probably why they had so many of them laying around. But <laughs> it's so funny that like they picked water bottles as an as a marketing item because it related to the truck. Just doesn't fit in it. Oh, well, I, I haven't tried it, but I don't think it does. Starship hot staging and engine firing. Uh, so this is some interesting new news from Elon Musk, I believe was the first to break it, uh, about hot staging, which we were talking about during the last and, well, first Starship launch, right? About what's going on with that staging event, because this it seemed to be kind of doing some somersaults, flipping around. It was all kind of weird. And I guess with that, and then with this news, we can kind of piece together what happened last time and why they're making this particular change. But just to, I guess, really just nail it home, right? The original profile for stage separation was to actually flip the entire Starship vehicle. So that mm -hmm. way the, centrifug the centrifugal force <laughs> basically throws away the upper stage when you do the separation during this. And then that's how, yeah. That you would rely on that, which I was stunned that they were going to do mm -hmm. that. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that we were all kind of stunned by. Like, yeah, that's it's such a large vehicle. And I think that the conclusion we came to was just that it's so big that that's what you need to do in order to get the distance necessary. Because if not, it would be kind of like lingering too long with the engines off before or if there was even any separation at all. Because there's no pusher system on board, right? And that's actually what you need in order to get the two stages separated. I suppose that's how it normally works with like most rockets hence why we brought up hot staging obliquely <laughs> during that conversation right yeah that would be your only other option um and so you know that's the conclusion that they came to too i mean there's no mention of the fact that that particular rotation maneuver didn't seem to really work too well at least i don't think it did well i kind of feel like they didn't even really get to that point i feel like the the vehicle was already uncontrollable and the the folks uh the hosts on the live stream said, oh, here we go, we're going into the flip, probably because that's what they were expecting to see, and they saw some rotation on the vehicle, and so they just, whoever's deciding to to say that line, or if the director is cueing them to say that line or whatever, like it just, 
they just move on to that part of the script because that's what the script says. And they like, it's not like they were being deceptive or uninformed or anything. It's just like, that's the way this flow works. And so I think that's why they said it. And I, I don't think they got to that part. Like, I don't think they were in a controlled intentional flip. I think they were uncontrolled and tumbling. Yeah. Cause that's the thing that I think that we were trying to figure out is what was yeah. going on. It looked kind of uncontrolled, but it looked like it was also supposed to happen. But either way, I think we all agreed that it's a pretty extreme way of staging a rocket, especially one that's this big. Yeah. Right. So I think that this is something that they deemed necessary, not so much that it's better, but it just kind of has to be done because it's probably not practical to do that flipping, spinning maneuver. Mm-hmm. I guess we can't know because uh, they didn't actually complete it. But And also I realize like I'm calling it like we've been calling it flipping, but at least I'm seeing in a description on uh, in a Teslarati article about how uh, the the boosters uh, Raptor engines that can gimbal would impart a small but significant rotation on the rocket moments before separation to f- effectively flick Starship away from it. Mm. So, right, yeah, um, you don't need to have a you know a full like I don't know have it do a hundred and eighty degree spin, and when it's like at I don't know <laughs> ninety degrees is when it releases mm-hmm. you know Starship or something crazy like that. That wouldn't be very helpful. Yeah, I called it flinging because I didn't know what else to call it, but uh, flicking works too. (laughs) But yeah, so so this is supposed to uh, give them a 10% payload increase. Now, Ben, you said earlier that this is just, this is more that it was a 10% cost due to the maneuver. um, And now that they're no longer doing that, that's actually where the increase comes from. My total gas. But would that not also just be because during the maneuver, the engines aren't on, right? So you're basically incurring those gravity losses the whole time. So it's just the time that you're spending with the engines off. And that's really what's going on, right? It's not so much the maneuver, but just no engines uh, for however many seconds it is. And that's probably what eats up that 10% or at least some of it. And then the other might actually be because it is still under thrust uh, with this new maneuver. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's just me guessing too. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're losing some propellant doing the flip, but like that should be pretty minimal compared to like your your flip and burn to go back mm-hmm. home and land. Um, but like also like they're really high up in the atmosphere, so there shouldn't be a lot of drag. But like maybe there's you know some amount of non-trivial drag that's eating up some payload capacity um, because you're no longer pointed at the oncoming wind. But right. I mean, it's, there's not, not a lot of pressure, so that shouldn't really be that big of a deal. But yeah, like I, I really think that the 10% that he's talking about here is comparing hot staging to the flip rather than hot staging to not hot staging in like a traditional separation, which is why I, I talked, I kind of reframed it as like, there's a 10% cost to doing the flip. And it must have some other benefits that they had identified. I don't know. Well, throwing my guess into the ring, too, is that, yeah, I was thinking similar to you, Ben, but even above most of the atmosphere, if you flick the starship away, its engines are no longer going to be pointed in the direction of the velocity vector. And so mm-hmm. it'll it'll have to, it, its thrust would still not be optimal until it gets back yeah. lined up in the direction it wants to go, I guess. And maybe yeah, that so, contributes to the cost. Yeah, D- David mentioned gravity losses. What you're describing are cosine losses. <laughs> so mm. we're we're getting all the all the losses listed here. And mm-hmm. I, and I covered uh, drag losses. So I I don't know if there are that many other things that can <laughs> be affecting uh, the rocket here. So it's one of all the possible things. Well, it's probably a combination of all of them to one degree or another, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> little column A, little column B. So during this maneuver, most of the 33 engines will be shut down. So it'll just be a you know a few of them firing. We don't know how many, uh, but this makes sense, right? Because if you had all three firing, I don't suppose a hot staging would even be feasible. It, it sounds like pretty bad because uh, what it takes to separate from a first stage that's really pushed up against you. I mean, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So how did the Soviet rockets do this? Did they shut down any engines? I know they never got to that far, but... Yeah, if they did, I don't know. Well, not not for N for N one, but like Soyuz hot hot stages, and I don't think that they shut down. They they probably throttle down, but I don't think they actually shut down whole engines for Soyuz. I would imagine in this case you can't throttle down enough. I, I'm guessing about the throttle down. I really don't know. You've got a, you've got a near empty first stage with very yeah. with more engines. Here. Yeah, it's it's just a recipe for it just slamming back into yeah. the mm-hmm. first stage. But I mean, like you know. 
yes, the first stage is almost empty, but like you've also dished the boosters. So like in some sense, that's also like turning off those engines because they're no longer contributing thrust. It was very n- nitpicky. <laughs> so what changes are going to need to be made? And apparently in just a couple months, they're going to have to build an extension to an inner stage, which is mostly vents. So because you have to vent yeah. all of that uh, gas somewhere. So it's going to look kind of like an N1 or something, right? Um, I mean, probably not really, but mm. it's going to have that. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine. I haven't seen any renders yet, but I'm kind of excited to see how they you know, how this looks like, what the updated version, the SpaceX version of such a thing would look like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to start looking more and more like N1. Yeah, well, just, I mean, probably mostly weird. just that part. Well, no, I, I, I agree, but it's still it's still weird that we're kind of converging <laughs> on, mm-hmm. a, on an N1 looking rocket. See, what I'm... When I th- when I think of any rocket that hot stages right now, they all seem to have a similar kind of like uh, uh, look to them, where they look like uh, what's that word uh, for uh, like a trellis, like mm-hmm. in gardening, right? That kind of th- that kind of style. But I'm wondering how much of that is that it's all you know the the Soviet slash Russian rockets, and then the Chinese ones, which are you know they learned a lot from the mm-hmm. Soviet Union and Russia, and so maybe that's why most hot firings have that look right now is, is because they all have the same lineage i guess and whether or not how different from a trellis look uh starships would show well i mean like the trellis makes a lot of sense because it's triangles well i mean it's a lot of diamonds but that what is a diamond but two triangles that share a butt and i feel like spacex will probably try to use hexagons if they can and it'll probably require too much structure or it'll add too much structural weight and then they'll wind up going to triangles (laughs) down the line that's my guess. Yeah. I mean, the triangles is the most structurally stable for sure. So I don't know it's how you can most, beat that. It's the most strength for the least mass. Yeah. Although I, I got to say, thanks, uh, Colin, in the chat pointing out, I always forget uh, the Titan was also hot staging. And sure enough, it's not triangles. It's just- uh, It's rectangles. Yeah, rectangles. <laughs> vertical bars, yeah. longitudinal bars. So so the, the vertical struts make sense um, from a different perspective, which is like they, they are low strength in a twisting motion, um, but they provide- the most direct transfer of force straight down through them. Like it's, they're only in compression um, while the mm-hmm. engines are turned on. Um, you wind up getting tension in the the twisting uh, and the shear. Yeah. The shear direction. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. shear and twist will, will put some tension on them, but otherwise they're only in compression. So it's a different way to solve the same problem. But I would think that the, the twisting moment would be really good to <laughs> be strong against. So Dennis, you found um, a really cool tweet um, where somebody's got some images of a possible vent s- system, and it looks like this is a piece that was spotted at Boca Chica um, laying around somewhere. So maybe they had this in mind, um, but it's really pretty. It looks like it's a series of arches that go around, and the arches are filled with rectangles. So it looks like arches in front of tall stained glass windows almost like it's very gothic which is so much better aesthetically speaking than hexagons in this case (laughs) and i wonder if those arches actually are able to provide additional strength just through their shape which would mean that this design is aesthetically pleasing and possibly solving an engineering problem so it's likely to stick around Mm -hmm. if you see arches that should be a flag that that's adding some kind of structural support to things so that's one change that needs to be made but also the top of the booster is going to need to have shielding uh, because you're going to be blasting a whole bunch of uh, exhaust into it so I wonder how much weight that's going to add actually yeah given the 10% increase can I just quickly throw out a cat that the 10% increase is uh, Musk just shooting from the hip. So that number is yeah. in yep. a confirmed. <laughs> I yeah. just well, he said conservatively. That. So, yeah. So, I mean, there seems to be some grain of salt is 10% all at it. the least. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they don't know. But, uh, but I mean, but this is going to add extra weight to that first stage. So luckily it's just the first stage and not the second stage or, you know, the starship because oh. that would uh, make it all the worse. But yeah, so I, I also wonder what kind of thermal protection they're going to need on the top of that booster. <laughs> Apparently we'll know soon enough because uh, these are changes that they're making for this very next flight, whenever that will be. You know, the idea is a couple months, but then again, I'm hearing that, I think somebody said it's most likely not going to launch again this year. I honestly don't know. I have no idea what to I think believe, Musk so. said something really 
good, which is a lot of the time constraints are outside of their control. So it could launch this year, could launch next year. And SpaceX has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, the near end of that window. So because they do have the light, one of the licenses uh, for basically the latter half of this year until, yeah. I guess the end of uh, December. So just just one little last quick thing. Uh, we don't know many details, but one detail is that there were over 1,000 changes made to uh, this new version of Starship for whenever it flies. And um, one thing that actually was pointed out is that it will not be a hodgepodge of Raptors. And those are Elon Musk's words. So hodgepodge of Raptors, because uh, I guess they kind of took all the ones that they had available, put them together, and that's how they did the first launch. But these new ones will have quite a few changes, and one of them will be new hot gas manifolds or uh, somehow, you know, improved ones. And apparently this will uh, reduce fuel leakage, uh, he said. So Which I guess it seems like that, a good thing. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting that, that they leaked any fuel. I didn't, I didn't know that. I guess there's always leaks, like they say, but, mm. um, and if it's hot gas, there's definitely going to be leaks actually. Now that I think about it, now that I'm saying it, I'm like, oh yeah, given how the engine works, I can totally see leaking being a real problem. And so they're going to have to mitigate that. Yeah. So that's one little change. And the new, again, shooting from the hip estimate from Musk about the success of getting to orbit, uh, he now puts at about 60%, which I think is about what he guessed before this announcement, maybe around 50, but he's maybe giving it a little bit better than 50% odds. So hmm. I think he said that the biggest change that they're going to have to worry about is this new uh, hot staging um, and all the changes you know, with that, which is not surprising. But yeah, I mean, I can't wait to see it. So I, I think that'll be interesting to watch. You just, you know, a hot staging occur with a vehicle this large and to see how SpaceX does it. It'll be cool. For sure. I mean, not only, like <laughs> having the opportunity to see the most powerful rocket ever hot stage. <laughs> That's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> All right, so this week, let's do three short and sweet. And Dennis, what is the first? First up, Europe test fires engine for reusable rocket stage. Ariane Group has successfully completed the final test in a firing campaign of their reusable Methalox Prometheus engine. Taking place at their Vernon site in France, the 100-ton variable thrust Prometheus engine was fired on the also reusable Themis rocket stage demonstrator. In the future, Themis is designed to perform hop tests similar to SpaceX's Grasshopper demo vehicle, and hoping to ultimately result in a fleet of reusable European rockets. Prometheus engine testing is scheduled to continue at DLR's test bench in Germany at the end of 2023. And then next up, Anti-ASAT Antipathy. A recent UN resolution that was approved last December marked the first step in an effort to encourage all nations to abandon ASAT tests in Earth orbit. However, this resolution is non-binding and several countries, including Russia and China, voted against it. More recently, several nations have endorsed the pursuit of a full ban on ASAT tests, but in order for this ban to be made legally binding, a much larger critical mass of support will be needed across all nations. And finally, Launcher's second OTV fails on orbit, jeopardy payloads. Launcher Space's Space Tug, Orbiter SN3, has malfunctioned shortly after deployment on SpaceX's Transporter 8 mission. After making first contact with the ground, the Space Tug's attitude control system was experiencing an anomaly, resulting in the vehicle spinning at one revolution per second. With fuel and power levels low, controllers on the ground commanded to deploy all the small sats on board, including Starfish Space's Otter Pup demo. While Starfish was able to get in touch with their vehicle, whose original mission called for rendezvous and docking with Orbiter SN3, it is unclear if they'll be able to stabilize Otter Pup and fulfill their mission by finding another vehicle to target. Wouldn't that be something? Just like asking all the other rideshare yeah. <laughs> hey, spacecraft. Can we touch hey, you? Hey, mind if we... Uh, hey, can yeah. we touch you? Hi, can we touch you? <laughs> okay, moving on to This Week in Space Flight History, we have two winners. Uh, we have Uncle Willie, and then we have Cy Kyle, who gets bonus points. Uh, so the clue last week was an audio clue, and here you go. Let me see if I can play it. Wait, there's something in the background. I couldn't hear it. <laughs> yeah, so that was the idea. So I, I feel like I feel like without me saying that, it wasn't actually the clue. Like I feel like that was part of the clue, right? <laughs> yeah. So like I was. said it instead of Dennis this time, but like so good. <laughs> Such a yeah. weird yeah. like meta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was a, so that that was a microwave in the background. Um, mm -hmm. And what does that make you think about? Um, I'm surprised that 
no one was able to guess what that sound effect was because that was a recording of an actual microwave. And that's a very distinct sound to me, at least. Yeah. Um, maybe I, it wasn't I, clear enough, but I wonder. No, I think it was pretty clear. I think the issue is that people didn't hear it. Like, I wonder if like it's, it's just yeah. such a normal thing that you just filter it out. Like <laughs> in undergrad, my ringtone on my phone because I didn't just have my phone on vibrate for some reason. The the ringtone on my phone was the sound of cell phone interference with PA systems because like nobody ever heard it, you know? So yeah, so so part of the clue, right? The, the two keys is microwave and background. And some of you might be going like, ah, right, of course. But I do have to give a shout out to Astro and Citronaut who both gave a great guess um, related to astronomy, which this event is also related to. Um, but it was a different microwave event. And if you haven't heard, um, there were these uh, kind of bursts of radio uh, signal that were being kind of sporadically found in the early 2000s uh, that they had named peritons or peritons. And uh, the Parks Observatory kept, you know, seeing them. And they were like, what's going on? We know about these fast radio bursts, but these peritons seem to be, you know, having all this anomalous behavior. And they ultimately tracked it down to a uh, using the microwave at the observatory and then opening the door a little too soon and letting a little bit of uh, gigahertz radiation uh, getting free and the, you know, telescope would pick it up uh, if it was aimed in the right direction. And so, yeah. And also, uh, uh, just a quick uh, add, uh, the Greek to the winning column, and in particular also getting bonus points uh, for getting the uh, the clue in the event correct. Um, but I did want to still say uh, thank you to Astro and Citronaut for giving me the opportunity to bring up that fun story about the microwave kerfuffle. So anyway, uh, this event, though, this that silly punny clue was referring to uh, the June 30th, 2001 launch of the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, or WMAP. And this was a spacecraft that was designed to study the cosmic microwave background, hence the sounds of a microwave and me and just now Ben talking about it being in the background. And so, yeah, we uh, got too clever for our own good, I think, with that one, but it was a lot of fun to record. <laughs> Let's start with, I guess, the launch. Um, so this is a spacecraft. Uh, you can uh, measure uh, some uh, little bits of the, uh, or you can measure the CMB to some extent from the ground, but it's pretty noisy. Um, uh, you could also do send up uh, balloons in Antarctica. It's been studied that way, but really getting it into space is the best way of essentially not just um, getting cleaner measurements of the cosmic microwave background, but also uh, getting the entire celestial sphere worth of coverage. And so I apologize in advance. I'm probably going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too into the astronomy, but I'm sure I'm going to fail at that miserably. And so let me just start with what is the cosmic microwave background? That might You're be an helpful. astronomer. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> how are you not the best person to describe this on this show? That's true. But there are some wonderful astronomy podcasts out there. But yeah, I, I've tried not to sure. steer us too far sure. <laughs> in that direction. Cool. But no, but there's a lot of cool uh, stuff to, that goes on with the, the engineering of the spacecraft, too, um, that I want to talk about. But but yeah, so uh, the cosmic microwave background, right? The Big Bang happens and the universe is very hot and dense. And at one point, it's cool enough that, you know, electrons and nuclei exist independently. Uh, but they are – it's too hot, though, for the – for, well, it's hot enough that all the nuclei are, all the atoms are ionized, and so they exist separately. And so it's literally a plasma. And at that point, um, uh, electrons are very good at scattering photons. So any photon that exists in this hot early universe plasma is not going to go very far at all. Some very tiny little distance, what's called the mean free path, before it scatters off an electron and gets knocked off in a different direction. So it doesn't really move in any one direction coherently. Now, the universe is expanding and cooling down, and eventually it cools enough for the electrons to recombine with the atoms. And then you have what's called the surface of last scattering, where the photons no longer have like a sea of electrons in this plasma around them, and they can just free stream. And at that point, they basically, some of them, most of them, uh, make it across the universe and 13.8 billion years later, reach our eyeballs, or not really our eyeballs, but, you know, reach planet Earth here. Um, and that's what the cosmic microwave background is. At that surface of last scattering, they were still, you know, it was, it had just been a plasma. And so it's still super hot. It's like thousands of Kelvin. And so most of the photons would be ultraviolet, but because 
the universe had been expanding in that intermediate 13.8 billion years, they reach us and they've been redshifted all the way from ultraviolet into the microwave. So like tens of gigahertz, like ridiculously longer wavelength than um, they were when they were first emitted. Okay. So that's what the cosmic microwave background is. So you're looking at this primordial plasma essentially from the early universe, uh, 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So a rounding error when you think about the universe's 13.8 billion year age. So we want to measure that. It was detected back in the 30s in New Jersey, actually, at Bell Labs, a pair of gentlemen that ended up winning a Nobel Prize. They just kind of had this background static that they couldn't get rid of, and they ultimately discovered that this static was probably this cosmic microwave background. So WMAP, June of 2001, we launch it on a Delta II uh, 7425-10 rocket. And so this was a you know, classic Delta II. Well, I'm not going to talk too much about the configuration of the rocket, but what's neat about WMAP, uh, the launch went fine, but that it was going to go to L2, the Earth-Sun Lagrange 2 point. And so this is the Lagrange point that is on the far side of the Earth relative to the Sun. It's also where JWST is parked at now and also where the Roman Space Telescope is going to go. Um, and I'm sure there's either other spacecraft there now or had been there in the past. I, I, I don't think that's comprehensive, just the three of them. So in any event, you know, Delta II isn't going to put on a direct trajectory to L2. <laughs> so uh, it puts it in this uh, fairly high eccentricity, I mean, really high eccentricity orbit around the Earth. And after three phasing loops, uh, it finally got the, the moon in just the right spot for it to then go and use the moon as a flyby to give it the gravity boost that would send it out to L2. And so three months later, on October 1st, it reaches L2, it enters its nice halo orbit there, and it spends the rest of its mission at that location, uh, about 150 uh, million kilometers from the Earth, if I remember that number correctly. Okay, so it's there, that's where it's going to be, you know, it's not going to have the Earth <laughs> obstructing it, if it like, like if it was in low Earth orbit, right? There's not going to be any eclipses or anything like that. It's just chilling out in free space, able to look at any part of the celestial sphere that it wants, which is great for this type of mission. Now, the spacecraft itself, uh, WMAP. Um, uh, I'll mention, welcome to the W uh, uh, as well, but like... Just real quick, what uh, microwave anisotropy probe? Microwave is the wavelength that it's looking at, uh, or you know the the range. Uh, probe is pretty straightforward, and anisotropy just means basically changes from isotropy, <laughs> which is like uh, uniformity in all directions. And so the the long the, the short of it is that uh, rat, even though this early universe plasma is about the most perfect black body that exists in the universe. Um, it's not a perfect black body. And there are very tiny uh, fluctuations on the order of like tens of micro Kelvin of this 2.7 Kelvin black body. So there's these tiny little fluctuations and those tiny fluctuations tell you a lot of interesting things about not just the universe as a whole, but also the formation of, you know, structure, uh, you know, galaxies, clusters, etc., as well as the relative content of dark matter and dark energy that exists in the universe. So there's a lot of great stuff you can pull out of um, these small anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background. Can I can I help with that with that word real quick? Sure. The way I understand it is by going back to the like the root word isotropic. Like I feel like mm. isotropic is easier than isotropy. And like isotropic is kind of a synonym for like homogeneous, right? So homogeneity would be the the uh, equivalent of isotropy and then anisotropy would be a homogeneity versus heterogeneity. Yes. It, so, if that so helps people visualize it. Cause like anisotropy, like even when I read it, I did not connect it to the word isotropic. <laughs> it's a weird <laughs> yeah, word. Yeah, no. And I'm glad you say that. Yeah. Cause, cause there's, there's a subtle difference though, between isotropy and homogeneity. Homogeneity oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is uniform in space while isotropy is uniform just in direction. So as long as it's varying yeah. in that one dimensional or, yeah, line of sight away from you, it could still be isotropic. But um, but exactly, that's the, the same analogy between isotropy and anisotropy is the difference is the same as homogeneity and heterogeneity. Heterogeneity. Mm -hmm. So good, thank you good, for uh, bringing that up. No, no, <laughs> I, I didn't know what the difference was. I knew that there was a difference. I just didn't know what it was. And so I'm glad you... You included it. That was fun. Yeah, because a lot of times you find things that are both homogeneous and isotropic. And so it's like, sure. yeah, <laughs> they often go hand in hand. So, uh, yeah, so that's where the, the MAP and WMAP come from. 
And so uh, it was Explorer 80. Um, once I found out that we still were numbering these Explorer missions since Explorer 1, I, I always will point out whenever we have a late Explorer mission. And so Explorer 80, it was actually one of the earliest uh, mid-X missions, uh, which were like the middle class sized explorers from NASA. Uh, it was originally proposed in 1995, that's six years before launch, and it was a, uh, a mission that uh, was really spearheaded by Goddard as well as Princeton. And um, it wasn't the first spacecraft sent uh, into space to observe the cosmic microwave background, um, even though it was first detected again back in the 30s uh, in New Jersey, we did send uh, a spacecraft called COBE, the Cosmic uh, Background Explorer. And that one uh, was able to basically do a very crude mapping of these uh, anisotropies, uh, these fluctuations in microwave light and thus uh, temperature. And, and how they measure that, how they convert it to a temperature, I think is actually super interesting. Um, but I had learned something new. I'd known about COBE for sure, but I didn't realize that the very first space mission to uh, look at the CMB was actually launched by uh, the Soviet Union. And it was called Relict 1. Um, they planned for a 2 and a 3, but they never launched them. And so, yeah, in 1983, they actually launched a spacecraft that went and looked at the, uh, the CMB and also made some very crude elements or measurements of the, uh, uh, the CMB. Basically, uh, I mean, among other things, it could tell that there was a dipole, the fact that the Earth is physically moving in space in one direction. So the part mm -hmm. of the CMB that it's moving towards is going to appear blue shifted and the part of the sky opposite it, the CMB is going to look a little redshifted. Um, so they detected that among a couple other very basic things. We, we know that that redshifting and blue shifting doesn't mean that there's an absolute stationary uh, reference to the universe. It's still relative. I don't know why this doesn't mean that, but I know it doesn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, like, since all frames are relative, Saying that the cosmic microwave background, let's say you pick that as your yeah. fixed frame, <laughs> that's yeah. it's a pretty good frame it's to still, use. Like it's <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. one that everybody can agree on, but it is still a single reference frame and not mm -hmm. not the only one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so obviously, when you're looking for these anisotropies, you want to you want to subtract out the Earth's motion um, as well as uh, dust and other sources of radiation that are in the foreground. You really mm -hmm. want to just look for this primordial uh, stuff in its own rest frame. So, uh, like I said, Kobe uh, had some very uh, coarse uh, measurements. And so at that point, uh, we knew that the universe's age was, you know, ballparked around 12 to 20 giga years. That's quite a big range. I mean, the fact that you know that it's, you know, 10 to 20-ish giga years is pretty impressive. But like, dang, we got to be able to do better than that. And so that was one of the key points of uh, WMAP to really, you know, improve the measurements and the signal to noise. So the vehicle was launched as uh, the, the microwave anisotropy probe map. Um, but then in 2003, a couple of years after launch, they added the W after a, um, uh, a mission team member, as well as a pioneer in uh, CMB uh, science, uh, uh, David T. Wilkinson, uh, had died. And so he was a, uh, he was a Princeton uh, astronomer. And um, yeah, they, they named the spacecraft after him and uh, that's when it became WMAP, which I thought was a very nice touch. So the spacecraft itself, it's a pretty cool looking uh, vehicle. It weighs about 840 kilograms, which I thought it would be fun for like reference, like, you know, what does that really mean? You know, uh, that's about the size of a Starlink uh, version two mini. So I guess, you know, a, a very big Starlink, <laughs> essentially, since the full V2s, they haven't started launching those yet. So yeah, it has an interesting look like it, it's basically... It's not like, you know, a box with solar panels coming out of it. Uh, and so I'll start at the base of the spacecraft and work my way to the top uh, to give you a sense of what it looks like. So at the base, um, there is a circular solar array um, that also has uh, some web shielding and multi-layer insulation um, to it uh, that starts off, uh, like I said, it's deployed. So it starts off kind of curled up or, or folded up uh, so it can fit in the Delta II fairing. And then when it was, you know, in space, they deployed it, and it has about a five-meter diameter uh, to it. And uh, with that multi-layer insulation, right, it's got that gold look, but uh, if you've seen Scott Manley's recent video, uh, it is not covered in gold or anything like that. That's Kapton <laughs> giving it that color. Uh, and so there's actually uh, six panels that radiate out from the kind of central axis of the main uh, spacecraft, and uh, that basically gets aimed at the sun the whole time. Uh, not exactly at the sun. I'll talk a little bit about 
how it's offset. Uh, but because of that, you're then able to passively cool um, the instruments uh, that are now shielded by this uh, circular array uh, down to 95 Kelvin, which is kind of their target. Now, on top of this five meter diameter array is the spacecraft bus. And that's kind of straightforward. It has, uh, you know, all the electronics in there, the attitude control uh, stuff. Uh, it had, um, in addition to the kind of your standard suite of star trackers and sun sensors and whatnot, uh, it used reaction wheels for attitude control. And uh, it had eight uh, blowdown hydrazine thrusters, right? So blowdown, you're just kind of, as the pressure drops, the pressure drops. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't need this thing to station keep forever. Um, and so, yeah. And, uh, and so that's, yeah, the spacecraft bus... And then on top of that is the top deck. And this is where you've got the real meat and potatoes, right? The instruments themselves, uh, along with a pair of uh, what they called elephant ear radiators. Uh, this didn't seem to be like a, an industry term or something. I couldn't really find uh, references to elephant ear radiators elsewhere. But I mean, they look like elephant ears, I guess. <laughs> you know, they've got that broad sort of look to them. Uh, it's also where um, these uh, it, there were a pair of uh, omni antennas on the spacecraft, as well as a medium gain antenna. Uh, I'm not actually sure exactly where the medium gain, gain antenna was, whether it was on the top deck or the spacecraft bus, uh, but that's not terribly important. But the real star of the show on the top deck were a pair of telescopes, um, identical, uh, symmetric ones that were put back to back to each other, right? So just visualize the cover art for the NES game Contra with the two guys back to back, right? This is what these telescopes are doing there. Um, even though they're, you know, 180 degrees apart, they end up technically because they kind of are at an, uh, the, the, the primary mirrors are at a funny angle. So in reality, they're aimed about 140 degrees apart. And that's aimed away from the shield at the bottom of the uh, spacecraft. Basically, the light comes in reflects off the primary telescopes, uh, the primary mirrors, dishes. They then go to the secondary mirrors. And then at that point, they're focused onto the, uh, the focal plane. And so there's a focal plane A and a focal plane B. And at these planes, uh, this is how you do with radio telescopes. You put what are called feed horns there. And in this case, there's 10 feed, ho feed horns and they correspond to the different channels um, of the, uh, you know, the different uh, frequency channels that it looks at. And I'll talk about those uh, later. And um, I, I loved it. My first class in grad school, uh, my, my professor, um, who's beyond uh, distinguished astronomer, was telling us, you know, feed horns is a fancy way of saying plumbing. They just take your signal and they just redirect it somewhere else in the space, like in the in uh, instrument box that you want it to go to. And so that's what they do. They take the signal and they bring it to the amplifiers that, you know, build it up. And so, and then it can ultimately be measured. Now to get this to work where, right, the light, you know, the, the microwave light comes in from one direction, but you want to focus it off axis. Um, you have to, you know, make these uh, telescopes off what are called off axis. And these specifically are off axis Gregorians, where the primary mirror is a parabola and the secondary mirror is an elliptical shape and it just brings the light to a focus. But what makes it off axis, I think is very interesting. So I'm gonna take a moment to talk about that. Um, imagine you got a big old regular parabolic telescope, okay? Uh, or a mirror, I should say, okay? It's gonna reflect the light to a focus, the prime focus, that is along the central axis of the mirror. That kind of makes sense. Now imagine if you took like a, a hole puncher and just punched out an oblong part of the mirror, but that is off to the side somewhere. So it still has the curvature of this larger mirror, but it's a smaller piece of it off to the side. If that's all you had, that's still going to bring the light to a focus that's along that original theoretical bigger mirror's uh, central axis. But now the only telescope mirror that exists is this small cutout that's off to the side, if that makes sense. And like Colin says in the chat, like a direct TV antenna, you see these a lot. Anytime where you see, you know, uh, a little, uh, the little feed is offset from the center of the dish, that's an off-axis uh, telescope. And so that off-axis telescope, technically, you can visualize it's part of a bigger theoretical dish that, you know, uh, is lined up with where the, uh, the axis is. 
uh, yeah, the, the, these pair were, uh, uh, you know, both of these off-axis types. Um, and they had this oblong shape because of that, you know, weirdish kind of curvature that they have, asymmetric curvature. Uh, so they were 1.4 by 1.6 meters, the primaries. And then the secondaries, which is the second dish that the light hits, uh, were 0.9 by 1 meter. And uh, they were coated with aluminum uh, as well as some silicon oxide uh, for thermal control, I guess, uh, to keep it cool and stable. And... Um, yeah, that ultimately results in a uh, uh, focal planes that have a 3.5 by 3.5 degree field of view. And a uh, if I can throw out some more astronomy terms, <laughs> it has a, a plate scale of... Uh, so a plate scale, you've got a focal plane, and that's where you're going to put your detector, or in this case, you're going to put feed horns, or maybe, you know, you put fiber optics, you know, whatever, depending on your whatever, whatever uh, measurements you're trying to make however you've built your instrument. But in any event, you've got your focal plane, and that corresponds to like a physical size. But you're mapping angular sizes onto it. And so that relationship between angular size and physical size is called the plate scale. And so oftentimes you'll see it in terms of how many arc seconds per pixel. Uh, but in particular for uh, uh, WMAP, it was quoted as uh, 15 arc minutes per centimeter. So that means, you know, a little... You know, something that's 15 arc minutes on the sky would be focused by WMAP onto one centimeter onto the plate. And so that's what that means. But uh, ultimately, though, with this, you ended up getting a resolution that, you know, I guess is good for microwaves and much, much better than Kobe, uh, about 0.2 to 0.3 degrees. Um, the full moon is half a degree for reference. This is about 33 times uh, greater angular resolution than Kobe. So... Uh, the, the spacecraft had uh, five frequency channels that it looked at, um, K-band, K-A, Q, V, and W, for those of you that are interested. Uh, it's 22 to 90 gigahertz. And um, even though there's five channels, and I mentioned that there were, uh, I think I had mentioned, uh, at each focal plane, you put 10 of these feed horns, uh, 10 of these pipes that then take the signal and route it to the amplifiers and the electronics uh, equipment that's deeper in the spacecraft. And um, even though there's only five frequency channels, um, some of them get more than one feed horn. And so that's why there's 10 feed horns, but only five channels. And so uh, the reason why you want to have this is because, like I mentioned before, if you want to look at this primordial radiation, you want to subtract out uh, other sources of light, like uh, uh, dust will emit some microwave light, um, as well as uh, you're going to get some from uh, synchrotron radiation and bremsstrahlung radiation. Uh, but those have a different uh, frequency signature across these bands. And so you can tell what light you're looking at, um, whether or not it's synchrotron or dust or whatever, by seeing how it, the relative uh, brightness in all these different bands. Um, and so that's how you can tell when you're looking at primordial microwave radiation. Now, I had mentioned uh, that I, the way that they did these measurements uh, was really interesting. So it wasn't just taking this microwave signal and then modeling and figuring out, okay, that corresponds to such and such a temperature. And we can find out the, the fluctuations that way. Uh, that would be much, much noisier. And so instead, they made differential measurements, right? So they, they, that's why there were two of them back to back, what's called a differential radiometer. And so when they would be looking at opposite parts of the sky, but not quite opposite, like I said, they're about 140 degrees apart. And even that 140 changed a little bit depending on which channel. Um, but you knew there's these two parts of the sky and you would go and basically measure the difference in signal between those two. And then based on that difference in signal, you would have a corresponding difference in temperature. And that's how you can get it to be very precise. It's the same basic idea of making differential measurements. You can be much more precise. It's kind of why interferometry tends to be such high precision. Uh, it's also why when they talk about global warming, they talk about temperature anomalies. Um, it's easier to tell how the temperature in a location is changing over time rather than try to compare its absolute temperature with the absolute temperature somewhere else and see how together those are changing. Um, and so, yeah, so they use this uh, differential measurement to be able to get such like you know, really high precision uh, measurements of the change in temperature. And uh, Kobe had done this too, except Kobe actually had uh, three outward looking uh, telescopes essentially. And then, uh, yeah. So, right. So that, that was the idea uh, to go up there and study the CMB. Um, like I mentioned, it was always, it always had that kind of shield part with the solar rays aimed at the sun, but not exactly at the sun because uh, the, the vehicle uh, was processing one rotation per hour. And uh, that procession had an, a half angle of 22 and a half degrees. 
So that's how, you know, wide it was spinning. And so they basically aimed the precession axis directly away from the sun. So rather than the spacecraft, you know, being completely, you know, opposite the sun, it was opposite the sun, or the, the instruments were opposite the sun, but then tipped 22 and a half degrees off to the side so that it would just precess in a little cone that was aimed directly away from the sun. Right? So the precession cone is aimed away from the sun. But because of that, just by the fact that it's, it's precessing and it's spinning as well, uh, it's spinning at a much uh, faster rate than one rotation per hour, and the fact that it's all the while orbiting around the sun at L2 uh, means that it would get the full sky uh, every six months. And so that was the idea. And so uh, they did a data release in their first year, but then, uh, you know, every... Uh, two years afterwards, so basically every odd year of its mission, uh, it would end up, you know, being able to revisit uh, these same parts of the sky and get better uh, signal-to-noise ratios there and be able to basically uh, make better and better uh, measurements overall. Uh, essentially, uh, it mapped the, uh, the power spectrum of the CMB uh, to uh, much smaller scales than COBE was able to. It was able to basically pick out uh, these wiggles and ripples in terms of uh, these these temperature fluctuations, these anisotropies. It could identify anisotropies on smaller scales than Kobe could. Um, here is where I was tempted to almost talk about uh, the, the CMB's power spectrum, but that would be a useless diversion for another five minutes or so. And so I'll just leave it at that, because uh, that is true. It was able to pick out these anisotropies on smaller scales than Kobe could. And so, yeah. So, uh, right, like I said, it was launched in 2001. And so after nine years of operations, uh, it collected its last data on August 19th, 2010. And they went and used its hydrazine thrusters to kind of push it out of L2 and just leave it in a heliocentric graveyard orbit. So that's when you, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's a real graveyard orbit. That's like being buried at sea, I guess. Um, you're, you're really far out there. And uh, the reason they did it wasn't that, I mean, it was passively cooled, so it didn't run out of uh, coolant. Um, I don't know what it's, you know, how much hydrazine it still had on board, but I'm sure, I don't think that was a limiting factor. Uh, the real thing was that a year earlier in 2009, ESA had launched Planck, which... Uh, was also a CMB spacecraft, uh, and it didn't do this differential imaging. It just took advantage of you know the latest and greatest in detectors, and it basically made even higher resolution and more exquisite measurements of the CMB than uh, even WMAP did. So uh, with yeah, with the launch of Planck, uh, it wasn't really you know worth. Uh, it just wasn't worth yeah keeping WMAP. Uh, to collect data since Planck was going to be able to do it much better. And so that's why it shut down. And so Planck made its measurements and uh, did a great job. And it's actually not even the last uh, planned uh, orbital CMB spacecraft. Uh, JAXA uh, wants to launch something called Lightbird uh, in 2028. That's L-I-T-E, bird. And this one would be... Uh, Basically, Planck has measured it at about the, the these anisotropies at the smallest resolution you can really hope to do. But... Uh, Lightbird is going to be looking at the polarization of the CMB, and that tells you other information about the early universe and the, uh, yeah, what was going on there. In particular, it's, it has to do with inflation. But yeah. But anyway, yeah, WMAP did a wonderful job. It was the first time that we kind of figured out our universe is about 14 billion years old. So pretty, uh, you know, pretty good legacy measurement to be able to take away from there. And yeah, uh, that's uh, this week in spaceflight history, the launch of that vehicle. Thank you, Dennis. That was uh, that was good. That was like the right amount of astronomy for this show. <laughs> okay, so next week is the 4th through the 10th of July. David, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week will be in 2003. The clue is the mass hasn't changed, but now it's too heavy. Great. Okay. If you think you know what this clue is in reference to, give us your guess. Uh, you can email us. You can tweet using the hashtag ThisWeekSF. Uh, I'm trying to find time to uh, build a Mastodon uh, bot that will uh, suck in guesses for Mastodon as well, because um, I'm feeling really gross about saying that we're on Twitter and Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> but not in the Fediverse yet. Uh, but yeah, uh, 
tweet, use the hashtag this week SF, and good luck, everybody. Good luck. So let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. And we just got two launches and one one other event. So, Ben, what's the first one other event? <laughs> uh, uh, Dragon is undocking from ISS. This is going to be happening. Uh, this is um, um, the cargo Dragon that's up there right now. Um, this is going to be happening on Thursday, uh, June 29th at 11.45 a.m. Eastern Time is when the coverage starts and the actual undocking is currently scheduled for 12.05 p.m. Eastern Time. And then next we've got a spacecraft that is uh, going to continue complementing uh, cosmic microwave background studies. <laughs> uh, and so it's very topical. But yeah, uh, we've got a uh, on Saturday, July 1st, a Falcon 9 Block 5 that'll be taking the Euclid Space Telescope. And so this is uh, an ESA infrared observatory um, that's going to not be looking at the cosmic microwave background, but basically making a map of very distant galaxies and being able to infer some things about dark energy and the evolution of the universe based on that. And so, uh, again, that's uh, a launch on July 1st, Saturday, uh, instantaneous at 1511 UTC. And this will be flying out of the Cape at Slick 40. And it's going to be heading to L2. So even more L2 fun. The next up after that, uh, not going to L2 and not a telescope, but we have an Arian 5, the ECA Plus variant, right? And I always forget what the ECA Plus stands for, even though we've talked about it multiple times. Can anybody remind me? It has to do with I'm going to say Evolution Cryogenique. Cryogenique. A. Wow. I that was good. That's been buried in my brain, I guess, from replying. Cryogenic <laughs> Evolution A. All right. So that's the that's the variant we're talking about here. So this is launching Syracuse 4B and Heinrich Hertz, which are two satellites. The first one is a French military communications satellite. The second one, Heinrich Hertz of, I guess, uh, frequency fame, his namesake, is a small geostationary communications satellite. So this uh, will be launching from Kourou in French Guiana um, from launch area three. Uh, and going to geostationary transfer orbit. And the time for that will be, looks like a couple hours, starting at 2130 UTC through 2305 UTC. So like a two-hour launch window. So yeah, you can check that one out. All right, those are your upcoming space flight events. And with that, time to deal with the show. And we'd like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record, we record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Astro, Calvin Stew, Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, Citronaut, Mike, Mr. Cesium, Psy Kyle, the Greek, and Con. Alan for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're an orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.